Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. One of the consequences of 40 years of low inflation is that everybody who'd warned about inflation had turned out to be wrong. New administrations often have one big policy debate that define their first year. Bill Clinton and deficit reduction, George W. Bush and terrorism, Barack Obama and the stimulus. For Joe Biden, it was about inflation. And he got it wrong. Policymakers have a tendency to want to make new mistakes rather than to want to make old mistakes. Larry Summers was president of Harvard, Bill Clinton's treasury secretary, and Barack Obama's top economic advisor. But nowadays, he's best known as the democratic policymaker outside the government who got the biggest question over the last two years right when all of his colleagues inside the government got it wrong. I hadn't seen a moment before where I was led to think we were having hugely dangerous overheating. In February 2021, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post making two big points. One, the Biden stimulus package was too big and could overheat the economy. And two, if inflation did take root, it could make it politically impossible to pass the long-term progressive priorities in the president's Build Back Better plan, which he supported. White House aides scoffed at his arguments, but he was right. Inflation is running higher than it's been in decades, and both the White House and the Fed have declared that addressing inflation is their single highest priority. Last week, when Joe Manchin ended discussions on climate and taxes, neutering even Biden's scaled-back Build Back Better plan, he blamed it on inflation. In fairness, it wasn't just Biden and his White House team who got it wrong. Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, and Janet Yellen, the Treasury secretary, made the same arguments as the president. America hadn't experienced inflation in 40 years. The idea that too much stimulus would trigger price hikes seemed outdated. If it did appear, it could be quickly tamed. Freed from that historic break on more progressive economic policies, it was better, the thinking went, to run the economy hot, keep unemployment very low, and wages climbing. But when inflation did appear, Biden, Yellen, and Powell all switched to a new argument. It was transitory. That, too, was wrong. So I wish my friends in the administration would turn their attention to what they can do to reduce inflation rather than clinging to the idea that this has been something that's been done to them by the fates. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. What's it like to warn about a catastrophic economic event when almost everyone in your party thinks you're wrong? And what happens when your dire predictions come true? I sat down with Larry Summers in Aspen, Colorado, where he was attending the Aspen Security Forum, an annual gathering of top national security officials. He met me on the terrace outside the event. You'll probably hear a bubbling brook in the background. 
and the wind rustling through the famous aspen trees here. We talked about the last 18 months of economic debates, why so many people got inflation wrong, what he thinks about Joe Manchin blowing up the Build Back Better deal, what Biden is getting wrong in his approach to China, and why we are almost certainly headed into a painful recession. One that just might have been avoided if Biden had listened to him. Do you think the Fed and the White House are in denial about what it's going to take to get this under control? I'm someone who tends to believe that it would be better if policymakers engaged in less forecasting and instead did their policies and left forecasting to others. But if you ask me, does the current Fed, CBO, or administration forecast represent a realistic best guess or the very optimistic, the possible, but very optimistic case starting from where we are now, I would have to say it's more like the possible, but really quite optimistic case. One way in how so one thing that that strikes you in reading back, uh, reading what you've written in the last year is we don't get out of these inflationary periods without a recession. What's your current current view of are we in a recession currently? Uh, What are the chances that we will be in one? And what's the likely severity of it? I think the painful lesson of economic history is that Soft landings are like what George Bernard Shaw said about second marriage, the triumph of hope over experience. (laughs) And we have had soft landings because we tightened at moments when the inflation rate was low and the unemployment rate was high, 1994, for example. Yeah. But we have not had soft landings from moments when the unemployment was below four and the inflation was well above four. Never happened. Never happened. How, and the, United, when, never happened in the United States going back, going back 60, 70 years. The odds are probably better than half that a recession will start next year. If we see the price of oil go as the geopolitical situation complicates this fall, if we see the price of oil go to 150, then you're looking at a that much more uh, difficult uh, situation. So I think this will depend a lot on what happens outside the economic realm. It will also depend on how lucky and, you know, how skillful uh, the Fed turns out to be. Their problem, Ryan, is like, I I like to compare it to taking a shower at an old hotel (laughs) where there's a 20 or 30 second lag between when you turn the faucet yeah. and when the temperature of the water changes. Yeah. And it's very difficult in that situation to avoid either scalding yourself or freezing yourself because you turn it and you turn it and you turn it and you don't feel anything and then you turn it again and then all of a sudden the water has over uh, adjusted. So they've got, apart from any bad geopolitical luck, a very, very difficult problem of balance in setting monetary policy, given the situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, your op-ed in the Washington Post was, well, one, and this has been widely discussed, was 
one of the most prescient pieces of, of commentary in the entire arc of the of the Biden administration so far. And two, from the sort of when the history of these first two years is written, that initial debate between your view of where things were going and the relationship between what, what, what would happen on inflation and the success or failure of Biden's legislative agenda was enormously consequential. And I just you said two things in, in, in that op ed. The first was about inflation. And the, probably the, the most widely quoted line was, there is a chance that macroeconomic stimulus on a scale closer to World War II levels than normal recession levels will set off inflationary pressures of a kind we have not seen in a generation. And then the, the second thing, which I think people forget often, is you said the other big problem here is if you put too much stimulus in the, in the early uh, Biden packages, you may create um, political conditions where you're not going to get the second package, which is actually more important for uh, long term for the economy. As we sit here, both of those things came true. Um, just been a week or so since Joe Manchin pulled the plug once again on a relatively ambitious version of the, the president's Build Back Better agenda. The second point you made in the op-ed was really a political analysis, though. It was the political space won't be there if you mess this up, right? And if, if inflation takes off and you've already spent, you know, $2 trillion, um, you didn't say this, but what was implicit was the Joe Mansions in the, wor the world might not be there for your second package, which you made clear was, you know, the public investments were the higher the higher priority. I had that. Con I had that concern, and I had that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that was not a pure professor. So I, but, yeah. That was not a. So when you that, that was not. You're yeah. absolutely right. That was You've not been around a the block. <laughs> pure professor. I was not a pure professor of uh, economics judgment. Nor was the judgment that I have expressed a number of times that inflation contributed to a sense of out of control in the country that contributed to the outcome of the 1968 presidential election with Richard Nixon and the 1980 presidential election with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And so Democrats- Margaret Thatcher in the UK. Demo Mar yeah, Margaret Thatcher in the UK. I think that's another example. So Democrats need to be careful with uh, respect to inflation if they best want to serve their long run objectives. I think it's helpful for the debate for all of these arguments uh, to be out there for consideration. Why wasn't there, and maybe there was and we just don't know it, but I have to tell you a lot of the reporting doesn't suggest there was, why wasn't there more of a robust debate around this issue? What does it tell us about the state of the Democratic Party, uh, ideologically and intellectually at that moment, that there was, uh, by all accounts, the kind of contrarian take on this, which in hindsight doesn't seem like it was, you know, that crazy, what, what, what you were predicting. I mean, 
you know, I remember covering you and your colleagues in 2009 after the Great Recession and the, the, hearing the accounts of the, the knockdown drag out fights you guys had uh, arguing over over how to how to how to deal with that stuff, whether to privatize banks, how big the stimulus sh- should be. It seems like this uh, it, it wasn't uh, as uh, well ventilated uh, a, a debate. What's your, you know, you know all the players. You've talked to them all over the last two years. What's your understanding of that? Because you're a political reporter, you gravitate to the internal dynamics of the White House. Because I'm an economist, I gravitate to the broader external dynamics of the professional debate. Uh, There were others who had my view. Uh, Olivier Blanchard, the hugely respected uh, former chief economist of the IMF, who probably writes in ways that break through a bit less than I do, um, expressed essentially the same view at essentially the same time uh, that I did. So it's not that I was isolated. And I think nobody to this day has challenged the calculation that I reported in the Washington Post at that time. About the Relative to the size of the output gap, This stimulus was five times as large as the original Obama stimulus. And while everybody agrees that the Obama stimulus should have been ideally, but for political constraints or whatever, been larger, no one has argued that it should have been anything like five times as large. So that core bit of arithmetic, and it's just arithmetic, nobody has really come out and disagreed with. I think that there's, you know, I think there's an element in this that the secret sauce of economics is arithmetic. And there were many people in the debate who didn't do arithmetic. They did qualitative direction. Hmm. And they thought more stimulus was good, so more stimulus was better. And they didn't think too much stimulus was really possible. And what economists are supposed to bring to this (laughs) is quantitative understanding as well as qualitative understanding. And I think there was a failure of that on the part of many in the profession. I think there was, I think the combination of the COVID emergency and the judgment of the financial crisis had led people to think, you could just analyze it all in qualitative uh, terms. I also think that 40 years of low inflation just led people to think that inflation was something you couldn't change with policy no matter what you did. Yeah. I think one of the consequences of 40 years of low inflation is that everybody who'd warned about inflation had turned out to be wrong. And that made people reluctant to warn about inflation. I think the central bank which has considerable credibility yes this and is, whose yeah. job it is to be highly focused on inflation just missed it all entirely yeah. but i think institutions are carried along by the currents of their times and the currents of the times were social concern high pressure economy yeah. respond to national emergency and that made it easier to lose sight of the core mandate 
around price stability. That's I interesting. I also think there was so you know, running there was at bad hot- luck here. I mean, I mean, be clear. I did not forecast that there would be nine percent inflation. But policymakers have a tendency to want to make new mistakes rather than to want to make old mistakes. And the mistake of the previous decade had been erring on the side of deflation. Right. And that, I think, encouraged people to err on uh, the side of inflation. The, I mean, part of this, and I wonder if you can help me unpack this, and part of what was happening, 40 years of no inflation – Democratic majorities, a sense of you got to strike while the iron is hot, hot, do as much as you can with your majorities before you lose them at the midterms. And the belief that you really could run the economy very hot, get unemployment very low, drive up wages, and not, because it hadn't happened in four decades, have, have inflation. And I just wonder if you could sort of Look, argue guess- the other side of this. What was the best case for Yes, we could we could run the economy this hot for for, uh, for a long period of time and keep unemployment low, which was the stated goal of the Biden administration. Right? They said it out loud. Look, I went into economics, yeah, because I wanted to contain recessions and contain depressions so that more people could be employed. I said to myself, if during your career you do something that causes the unemployment rate to be one-tenth of 1% lower for one month, that's 150,000 kids who look at their parents and see someone who's working rather than someone who's sitting at home upset because they're not working. That's why I went into economics. The first major papers I wrote were about the benefits of a high-pressure economy. Some of my major research in the 1980s was, was on what were called hysteresis theories, theories of how recessions cast a long-term shadow that was adverse, so one needed to protect against them. My work on secular stagnation was all about the importance of stimulating uh, demand. So I was a person who desperately wanted to believe in doing as much as you possibly can. But that doesn't suspend the laws of arithmetic. And I also knew that when you had overheated economies, you had calamities, calamities like the 1982 uh, calamity. So I knew you had to be very careful. I'd been watching the economy for decades, and I hadn't seen a moment before where I was led to think we were having hugely dangerous overheating. So I liked it much better when I was on the secular stagnation argument. I was for more stimulus to help more people. But it seems to me that it's the essence of seriousness in policymaking to think about what's going to happen over the medium term rather than to just think about what's going to happen immediately. You know, I never said we needed to do this because it was important to have a sound bond market. I did it because I thought that if you cared about progressive objectives over time, the objective of employing as many people as possible, the objective of having a fairer economy, the objective of having necessary 
public investments that can support broad-scale employment and more equal growth, you're compromising those things with uh, the large-scale distribution of uh, checks in the short run. For anyone who's seriously interested, they should read former Obama CEA chair's Jason Furman's uh, Wall Street Journal column. Some of the key arguments are that our stimulus is has big effects on inflation everywhere, in part because it makes our dollar strong and makes their currencies very weak, which contribute to their inflation. Wait, so in- the, the argument the the argument on your side of the debate is that our our stimulus massive stimulus our stimulus a has our stimulus has as it did in the nineteen as it did in uh, the nineteen sixties as it did in uh, the nineteen seventies. There's very strong correlation across countries in inflation because of the central role of the dollar huh. uh, in uh, the monetary system. First, second. Those countries have much larger uh, supply shocks uh, than we do because they're wholly dependent on imported oil, wholly dependent on imported natural gas, which has gone up in price by a factor of seven, substantially dependent on uh, imported agricultural prices uh, as well. They also, the differences in Core inflation and wage inflation, I would argue, are not completely minimal. And by the way, the UK central bank has been even further behind the curve than our central bank has. And until today, Europe was maintaining a regime with negative nominal interest rates, literally interest rates below zero. So some of the same kind of thing I'm describing has uh, been uh, the nature of their policy. And I guess the last thing I would say is I think we've always taken pride in the United States in having a better economy, a stronger economy, a more competitive economy, an economy that works better for Americans. And to say, you should think it's okay for our economy to have high inflation and massive losses in real wages just because Europe's having it, that means you should be satisfied with the policies that we've pursued. Seems to me to be setting an awfully low set of sights for our uh, for ourselves. So I frankly wish my friends in the administration would turn their attention to what they can do to reduce inflation rather than clinging to the idea that this has been something that's been done to them by the fates. You mentioned, Ryan, a few minutes ago that um, people felt that the stimulus wasn't all going to spend out in the first year and that it was going to spend out down the road. Yeah. Well, that's true. And now's down the road. And so that stimulus from last year is still creating a challenge this year and potentially uh, next year. We 
we should be raising taxes. There is no reason why we shouldn't be repealing loopholes at a moment like this. I think one of the very best things that the Biden administration has done in economic policy is the uh, international tax agreement that Secretary Yellen drove. That agreement is now on life support. And it's on life support because the Biden administration and Congress have not passed the necessary implementing legislation. And I think that should have been a much larger priority rather than being packaged with a large number of other things. I still hope a way will be found to pass that. And the extra revenue collection and taking that money out of the economy will also contribute to inflation uh, reduction. Does it frustrate you that Joe Manchin uses the inflation argument to oppose the Biden administration's rollback of the Trump tax cuts? And and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, rolling those tax cuts back is not inflationary. And I I think you've pointed out many times is is the opposite. And yet you have the, the, the crucial 50th vote in the Senate, you know, basically neuter this package by pointing to inflation and saying, no, we can't raise taxes. The economy's too inflationary. I, I'm going to stay away from uh, personalities, Ryan, but, no I'll personality. say, but I'll say, but I'll say, but I'll I say, say this, you, I'll say this. I think he's the, wrong about that, correct? I'll, I will say, I think the theory yeah. that all tax increases are inflationary is not a plausible or reasonable economic theory. There is every reason to expect that a well-designed program of tax increases that includes a variety of corporate tax loophole closing and that includes a variety of measures to enforce the tax law we have that does not raise tax rates on anyone, that does not levy any kind of sales tax. The enforcement part. Yeah. Yeah. But but that the whole program is closing loopholes and is not raising any tax rate on any individual or any particular good. That program is deflationary. To suggest that it is inflationary is, I think, just wrong. In the same way that it was just wrong to suggest that in the short run, investing in infrastructure would somehow be uh, deflationary. The reality is that in the short run, when you increase demand, you increase inflation. And when you decrease demand, you decrease inflation. And when politicians of either stripe say different, they are running opposite to what I believe the vast majority of economists think. I want to switch tracks a little, a little bit, um, just because we're here in Aspen. And one of the most interesting conversations that took place yesterday, uh, before you arrived, Larry, was both the the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. and the, the CIA director talked quite a bit about Taiwan. The Chinese ambassador um, had some very sharp comments about 
a series of, uh, of of U.S. statements and policies that, from his perspective, have um, I think his, his phrase was hollowed out the the one China policy, including you know the usual litany: sending uh, advanced weaponry to Taiwan, sending senior U.S. officials uh, to t- Taiwan. He didn't mention uh, Nancy Pelosi's impending trip, but that's clearly what he was talking about, and referenced Biden's uh, I think three statements where he said we would defend Taiwan mil- militarily and then was sort of walk, walk back. Uh, his aide said, you know, it's still strategic ambiguity. And then the CIA director who, who spoke afterwards had a very interesting analysis of um, the likelihood that China would take control of Taiwan, said that China was unsettled by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the lesson they've learned is, you know, when they do uh, inevitably go in, to, they will have to use uh, overwhelming force. The Biden administration has uh, flitted back and forth with hawkishness towards China and conciliation. Biden announced that he's going to be talking to Xi for the first time in, in, in a long in, in four months, I think, in the next 10 days. We talked about tariffs before. The administration, perhaps because of uh, some political considerations, doesn't want to roll back the Trump tariffs on China. You think that that it's very important that that they do. What's your view of how we are approaching this relationship right now? Ryan, I wince when some of my friends in the straight out national security uh, community make comments about economics. (laughs) And so I think it behooves me to be careful um, in what I say about uh, yeah. national security and the balance of power, in uh, <laughs> you didn't respect Ga- in, you didn't respect Gates's views when you were in uh, in meetings where it, he was it, talking it, about stimulus <laughs> in Taiwan in Taiwan and uh, and all and all of that. What I think I would say is that I think it is hugely important that we be engaged in dialogue with China. I think the judgment the administration made at the beginning of the administration to basically not have any systematic dialogue with China until after nine months or after nine months or a year, the United States was in a much stronger position. I don't think that judgment has worked out so well, given what has happened uh, in the United States. And so I think it's terribly important in some ways the less trusting and confident we are in them, the more important it is that there be channels of communication like George Schultz when he was Secretary of State during the Reagan administration had extremely frequent contact with the Russian foreign minister. So I think the avoidance of contact is a very problematic thing in both the economic and the political realms. Bill Burns made that I, point as well. That, I think yeah. we're, I think we, people look at Germany right now and they say, how could they have allowed themselves to be so dependent on Russia for natural gas? And I think people will look at us and say, how could we have allowed ourselves to be so dependent on Taiwan-sourced, very advanced uh, semiconductors? And so the failure to 
move forward with diversifying our supply chains in that area, supporting an indigenous uh, semiconductor industry. I think that is a historic mistake because I think that was I think the most important kinds of legislation to have passed last year were about semiconductors, were about doing everything uh, we can about COVID. And we didn't do I we didn't do either of those. And those were looks the like, things I mean, it looks that like were the most important for the long run. It now looks like something yeah. now looks like something partial on the semiconductors yeah. is gonna happen, but it's not gonna be the broader gauge stimulus to US innovation uh that we would uh that we would have hoped for. Do you think Nancy Pelosi should go to Taiwan? You know, I don't have access to all the information uh, that she does or that people in the Biden administration do. I was surprised by uh, her desire uh, to uh, go. I didn't really understand why having the person third in line to the presidency the most senior visitor to uh, Taiwan in uh, 25 years. It was hard to see with all that needs to be addressed in uh, the United States um, and with all the tensions and potential for misunderstanding with uh, China, it was hard for me to it's hard for me to understand why this is the right moment for that trip. But Ryan, I, I learned when I was in government, sometimes people criticize things I did and I thought, okay, we've got a different opinion. But sometimes people criticize things, criticize things I did and I thought to myself, I know things they don't know. And if they knew what I know, they would agree with me, but I couldn't tell them what I knew because it was classified or sensitive in uh, some way. And that, off, that happened fairly frequently. You've been around the Democratic Party uh, for a long time. You've watched the ideological um, back and forth uh, between the left and the center in the party sort of ebb and flow over the... Um, last 50 years or so, the Biden administration's popularity declined to numbers that are lower than even even Trump's at this point. Um, and you see how the debate is playing out between the, the sort of activist base of the party um, and the less politically engaged, uh, but but more ideologically centrist um, portion of the party. What, what's, what's your view right now um, about the party writ large? What encourages you? What concerns you? When I think of the traditional Democratic Party, yeah. and I think of Franklin Roosevelt, yeah, yeah. I think of a famous picture that we've all seen of three guys sitting on a strapped on to a girder above Manhattan eating their lunch. Yeah, yeah. And I think of those as being the quintessential working people, Ro Roosevelt Democrats. 
you can't read the public opinion polls today without understanding that two out of three of those people are no longer Democrats. And I think that is the central challenge for the progressive political project and what you're going to do about uh, that group, which has moved in droves away from uh, the Democratic Party and away from progressive political ideas. And I think there's a great debate. Uh, there are some who believe that a more aggressive populist economic agenda based on tearing down the wealthy is what's necessary to get them back. And there are others who believe that the Democratic Party no longer or substantial parts of the Democratic Party no longer speak a language that they understand, um, that they're not interested in changing the society's bathroom arrangements, that they are resistant to identity uh, politics based uh, approaches, that they think everyone should be able to have their say in uh, any uh, direction. You All right. So um, a little less clear cut, but goes back to something what we were talking about before is the lack of um, ideological diversity in, in the in the Biden administration, especially on the on the economics team. Um, this may not be accurate, but a lot of the coverage when you were writing that stuff in early 2021, people tried to discredit the arguments by saying, that's the Larry Summers wing of the Democratic Party. We don't we don't listen to that th those guys at, at, anymore without engaging in the in the in the, in the substance. Look, I, I've always believed you learn much more from those who disagree with you than those who agree with you. I want to have my prejudices confronted, and I want to have my mind opened. And it seems to me that the best policy making comes when you have a variety of perspectives. I used to say to President Obama that business confidence is the cheapest form of stimulus. And I and there's a very famous letter that Keynes, um, who was radical in his day, wrote to President Roosevelt that was uh, to the same effect, and I would like to see over time more people with private sector experience um, go into uh, the government because I think it would help add to confidence. I also think that lots of policy is about implementation, and people like me have certain kind of expertise in policy analysis, but people who've run large organizations often have a capacity to drive uh, change and to implement more effectively. 
And I think that is a very, very important thing in restoring confidence in government. Larry, thank you for doing this. I hope you're not all uh, talked out because you have to go up there and now uh, do another one of these in front of the crowd. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And that's our show. Our producers are Afra Abdullah and Kara Tabor. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Almond is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.